Time, Time Magazine wrote an article, they said this is the most complex surgical procedure in the history of mankind. <laughs> One of his people came up and said, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, Rod Stewart just came in. And he said, I don't care, this is Ben Garson. <laughs> My wife didn't like it too much because we had to take several takes with Eva Mendez pushing me. And she didn't like that. In the first several months, for every new regulation, we got rid of 22. Wow, wow. <laughs> we got rid of more than 2,000 regulations and sub-regulations at HUD alone. He said, sir, I am an expert marksman, and I shot you many times. <laughs> I'm Rick Walker. I'm sitting down with some of my most captivating friends to discuss topics ranging from politics and business to religion and pop culture. Welcome to Conversations at the Mansion. Dr. Ben Carson, welcome to Conversations at the Mansion. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. Well, I always like to start off because from the public's perspective, we see this huge amount of success. We see the 29 years of chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. We see the four years as secretary of HUD. We see the bestsellers, we see the 60 honorary doctorates, we see all this massive amounts of success. But we want to know what is Ben Carson like behind scenes when you're with your family, when you're with your friends, when you're with your community of faith? Well, you know, first of all, I have to tell you that uh, the center of my being is my faith. Uh, that's really been responsible for getting me through everything. You know, I think back to the time when I was nine years old, sitting on the ghetto steps in Boston. My parents had been divorced. We had moved from Detroit to Boston. And I was looking through the building across the street because all the windows were broken out. And there was a sunbeam shining through, and it made me think about my future. And I remember thinking, it was very unlikely that I would live to be beyond 20 or 25 years. Wow. Because that's what I saw around me. You know, my two favorite cousins were killed at young ages. And it just uh, seemed like that was going to be the, the life you'd live. And there were so many people who were always so negative. They were always saying, you know, the society is stacked against you. You know, the same stuff that they're saying today, you know, with systemic racism, except then it was true. Yes. Now it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but, you know, I had a, a mother who was so determined. She had less than a third grade education and, uh, you know, came from a huge rural family, uh, got married at age 13 discovered that her husband was a bigamist years later and of course they got divorced but uh, there she was trying to raise us by herself and obviously we had no place to live and that's how we ended up in Boston with her older sister and brother-in-law a typical tenement there but you know she wanted something better for us and she worked very hard two three jobs at a time getting up leaving the house at five in the morning, getting back after midnight. Wow. Uh, she wasn't enamored of the ideal of, of welfare, and she wanted to be able to do things herself. And after a couple of years, we were able to move back to Detroit. 
still in a multifamily dwelling in a horrible area, but nevertheless, she was independent. Yes. And uh, she was just terrified that both my brother and myself were terrible students <laughs> because we lived right at the railroad tracks. The railroad tracks sort of separated the black area from the white area, and we lived just across on the white area, so we went to, went to the white school. And, uh, and the teachers really didn't expect you to do very well, so, you know, that was, this was like normal. <laughs> yeah, you know, I yeah. was just a horrible student, and that's what the way it was supposed to be, but she wasn't accepting that at all. And uh, She was actually, even though she had less than a third grade education, she was very wise. And, you know, she was cleaning the homes of, of wealthy people, and she was observing them. She was. And she was saying, you know, I think the reason these people do so well is because they read a lot and they study. And uh, so she came home and imposed that on me and my brother. And we were not happy campers at all. <laughs> you, you guys were watching TV all day. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were having a good time, you know. And all of a sudden she says, you know, you can only watch two or three TV programs pre-selected during the week and with all that spare time you're going to have to read two books apiece from the Detroit Public Library and submit to me a written book report. Every week or every, every month? Every week. Wow. Every week. And, uh, you know, if it had been today's world, we would have called social services. They <laughs> 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 would have carried it away in handcuffs. But, uh, you know, there we were. And, um, you know, I didn't like it very much in the beginning, but after a while, I actually started to enjoy reading books because it was much more entertaining than television. Well, first of all, you gotta look, you're looking at words all the time. So you learn how to spell. Yes. And then you have to put those words together. So you learn grammar and syntax. And then you have to take those sentences and make them the concept so you use your imagination. And that's much more entertaining than watching what somebody <laughs> else imagines. Certainly. And uh, you know, the important thing is I started reading about scientists and explorers and entrepreneurs and surgeons, and I, I, I started thinking as I read all of their stories that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you is you. It's not some circumstance, it's not somebody else, uh, it's not some obstacle that somebody puts up, it's how you face those obstacles. And do you let those obstacles become a barrier and an excuse for failure? Or do you let that obstacle become a hurdle which strengthens you every time you jump over one? I chose the latter. And uh, you know, within a year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class, much to the consternation of all those students who used to laugh and call me <laughs> dummy. Now they were coming to me asking me how to solve the problem. <laughs> and I would say, sit at my feet, youngster, while I instruct you. I was probably a little obnoxious, but it sure felt good to say that to those turkeys. But you know, I had a complete revolution in the way that I thought. And the same thing happened with my brother, exactly the same thing. And uh, you know, off I went to Yale University, won a scholarship. You know, I, um, I only applied to one college because I only had enough money to apply to one college. <laughs> and uh, I, 
my, my favorite TV show was a show called GE College Bowl. Okay. It came on every Sunday and they pitted two colleges against each other, four contestants on each one, and they would ask questions about science and math and history. And I was really good at all this stuff. But they would also ask questions about classical music and classical art. And there was no way you were going to learn that stuff, you know, in southwest Detroit. But, uh, you know, I made an executive decision. I started going down to the Detroit Institute of Arts day after day, week after week, month after month, roaming through those galleries until I knew every painting, who painted them, when they were born, when they died, what period it represented, uh, always listening to my portable radio, Bach, Telemann, yes. Mozart. Kids in Detroit thought I was nuts, you know, a black kid in Motown listening to Mozart, you know. <laughs> I tried to convince them that Motown meant Mozart, but nobody was playing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it gave me a, a, a tremendous body of, of knowledge. And, um, you know, I was accepted at Yale. I, I said I was going to apply to the college that won the grand championship in College Bowl that year, and it was, the grand championship was between Harvard and Yale and Yale just demolished Harvard, so I didn't want to go to school with a bunch of dummies, so I applied to Yale, and they accepted me. And, uh, but the, I wanted to be on College Bowl, but the year I went there was the year College Bowl went off to Yale. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it was sort of a traumatic experience, though, because, you know, I was used to just studying a half an hour before a test and getting an A. So I wasn't that diligent a student, quite yes. frankly. And um, interestingly enough, uh, I was not doing well, as you might imagine. Yes. I came to the end of that first semester, and I was failing freshman chemistry. And uh, I was pre-med. You can't fail chemistry and be pre-med. <laughs> so, you know, it was the, the night before the final exams, and I just said, Lord, I always thought you wanted me to be a doctor. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do is to be a doctor. First I wanted to be a missionary doctor, then I wanted to be a psychiatrist, but it was always some kind of doctor. And I said, obviously I'm not going to be a doctor because I'm going to fail chemistry. I said, so could you please tell me what it is you really want me to do? <laughs> or alternatively and preferably work a miracle. <laughs> and there I took this big, thick chemistry book, and I'm going through it. I'm going to go through this whole thing in one night, you know. And, of course, I fell asleep. And I dreamed I was uh, in the auditorium, the chemistry auditorium, where the lectures were given. Just me and a nebulous figure working chemistry problems on the blackboard. And I awakened very early in the morning, and the dream was so vivid in my mind, I started looking up the stuff that the nebulous figure was writing out. And the next day when I went to take my chemistry exam, um, I opened the, the test booklet, and the first problem, I said, wow, that's one of the ones I dreamed about. Wow. Boom, that was easy. I turned the page, the same thing. I aced it. I was one of the first people out. Got it a great mark on it. And I just said, Lord, it's obvious you want me to be a doctor. And I said, I'm never going to put you in that position again. I'm going to study. <laughs> 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 
and that did make a big difference. Wow. But, but then it was on to medical school mm -hmm. uh, at the University of Michigan. And, um, you know, I, I did poorly on the first set of comprehensive exams. And so poorly, in fact, that my counselor, the person that they assigned to get you through, you know, I had to go and see him. And he looked at my record and said, you seem like a very intelligent young man. He says, I bet there's a lot of things you could do outside of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, the, uh, your situation is hopeless, you, you know, so you should really drop out. We can help get you into some other program or something. And uh, yeah, I was devastated. I just went back to my apartment. And I, I just prayed. I said, Lord, help me to figure out what to do. And I, I started thinking about my life, my academic life. And I said, what kind of courses have you always done well in? And what kind of courses have you struggled in? And what's the common denominator? And I, I realized I did really well in courses where I did a lot of reading. And I struggled in courses where I had to listen to a bunch of boring lectures. Because I don't get anything out of boring lectures, zero. <laughs> and there I was sitting in six to eight hours worth of boring lectures every day. Wow. So I just made an executive decision to skip the boring lectures and spend that time reading. And the rest of medical school was a snap after that. Wow. And wow. You know, years later, when I came back to the medical school as the commencement speaker, I was looking for that counselor because I was going to tell him he wasn't cut out to be a counselor. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, there's so many people who are just negative, yeah. negative all the time. They're always telling you what you can't do and not helping you figure out what you can do. That's right. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, my wife and I have taken such an interest in, you know, the academic uh, careers of young people. and. You know, we put in reading rooms all over the country. I think we've got close to uh, 235 of them now. Yeah, and this is through the through the Carson Fund. Through the Carson Scholars Fund. Great, and you guys you guys won the prestigious philanthropic award from the Simon Group yes. a few years ago. Yes. Which a lot of people that aren't outside that aren't inside the philanthropic world understand that that is a huge deal. That's a huge award. It comes with 250 thousand dollars. And we also won the Ronald McDonald uh, Charity Award, which comes with a check for $100,000. Wow. And Ford Foundation and a, a bunch of stuff. But, you know, because what we tried to do is uh, encourage young people not only to excel academically, but also to care about other people. Mm -hmm. So you can't win unless you have at least a 3.75 grade point average. and you have demonstrated significant humanitarian qualities. And because we're really trying to create the future leaders, there are plenty of people who are smart. You know, Hitler was smart. Yeah. Marquis de Sade was smart. But they were not nice people. <laughs> they didn't <laughs> care about other people. Yes. And, you know, we need people who are both smart and who are caring. And you know, I think we especially need that now because, you know, when you look around you, you see so many people who are mean to each other, who are cruel to each other. And, um, you know, they just say the nastiest things. If you don't agree with them, they try to cancel you. Mm -hmm. 
And so, you know, that was the, the whole purpose of trying to create future leaders. And this is the 25th year. This wow. is our 25th anniversary. And uh, a couple of months ago, we gave out our 10,000th scholarship. Wow. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see this uh, going on. Yeah. And uh, we were, uh, earlier this week, or was it last week, I don't remember, we were walking around uh, in D.C. Uh, near the Washington Monument, and a woman came riding up on a bike, and she said, my son is an eight times Carson Scholars, because you can start in the fourth grade and you can win every year until you graduate wow. from high school. Wow. And she was so proud of him. <laughs> but uh, I told him we were just as proud of him as she was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things have become, you know, extremely important. But, you know, just trying to help people in general. And, you know, that was the wonderful thing about being a pediatric neurosurgeon. Uh, you know, there were so many kids who really had desperate illnesses mm -hmm. and abnormalities. And in many cases, people had given up on them. And uh, through the grace of God, you know, a lot of times we were able to save them and give them a, a second chance at life. And there's really nothing more satisfying than that. And I run into people all the time who come up to me and they'll say, Dr. Carson, my parents told me that you operated on me when I was a little baby. <laughs> I just want to thank you. you wow. know. It's, it's so cool uh, to see that. But, you know, I retired. Yeah. Uh, some people think early, but someone told me that neurosurgeons died early. And I didn't believe that. So I wrote down the names of the last 10 neurosurgeons that I knew who died, calculated the average age of death, and it was 61. Wow. So I just said, when I turn 61, I'm going to retire if I'm still alive. And, um, but then I failed retirement because all of a sudden, you know, people were wanting me to run for president. Yes. Uh, after I gave the national prayer breakfast speech in 2013, yes. which I thought was a really strange request because I had given the National Prayer Breakfast speech in uh, 1997. Yes. And I wasn't aware that anyone ever did it twice. <laughs> but some research demonstrated that there was one person who did it twice, and that was Billy Graham. Wow. And I said, well, that's pretty good company. That so is. I said, Lord, I don't know what you want me to say. And I really didn't know right up until the morning of the speech, which made everybody very nervous because they wanted to know what I was going to say. Yes. <laughs> But um, after that speech, you know, everybody was saying, you got to run for president. And I was saying, don't get out of my face. Don't be ridiculous. Why would I run for president? But uh, they just kept saying it everywhere I went. you got to run for president. Run, Ben, run rallies. Every place I went, people with placards. And, you know, I said, this is ridiculous. If I keep ignoring them, they'll go away. But they didn't. It got louder. I had over five hundred thousand petitions in my office to run for president. Wow. I could barely get in the office. And um, finally, I just said, Lord, you know, I don't want to run for president. I said, I don't have any of the things that people who run for president have, a Rolodex with all the important names 
uh, a big war chest of money, uh, an organization. <laughs> I said, so, you know, it, it would really be impractical for me unless you provide all that stuff. Yeah. The next thing I knew, I had an organization. That they were raising more money than the RNC every month. That was just incredible yeah. what it, was going on. You came out of the gate, and you were pulling one or two almost immediately. It seemed like it was very, very quick. Well, right after the first debate, yeah, uh, when people really started to get to know me, which is why I was always saying, why don't you guys ask me a question? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But... Uh, you know, it all worked out. Um, you know, I discovered that philosophically I was very similar to President Trump. Um, Personality-wise, we were very different, but uh, philosophically, same ideals, particularly about what to do to stimulate the economy and get things going again, and how a rising tide floats all boats. You don't have to necessarily pick this group or that group. Just fix it so that it helps everybody yes. and that's his way to do things um, and then uh, you know ending up as uh, secretary of housing and urban development which was an area that I chose because I was very interested in what was happening with the poor in our country and how that dependency was being encouraged by the system that we had for instance, you know, if you're getting a housing subsidy and you get a raise, you make more money, you have to report that immediately so your rent can go up. Or if you bring somebody into your household who's making money, you have to report that so your rent can go up. Uh, not particularly conducive to family development. Um, and, you know, I was very impressed by the Brookings Institute and their study on poverty. They did a massive study on poverty, which concluded that it was relatively easy for people not to live in poverty. There are certain things they had to do. Finish high school, get married, get a job, and wait till you're married to have children. If you do those things, you have less than a 2% chance of living in poverty. Right. You don't that's, care what color you are. That's the Ron Haskins success <laughs> sequence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. And, you know, why were our policies not taking those things into consideration? And in many cases, moving in exactly the opposite direction. And then we wonder why we have increasing poverty or why we haven't won the war on poverty since it was declared and more than $19 trillion spent. And uh, so we started enacting programs uh, that would change that. Uh, and, you know, opportunity zones, getting people to invest unrealized capital gains in neglected areas, economically neglected areas. Some people were saying, well, you guys are just trying to find ways for rich people to get richer. You don't really care about the poor people. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, rich people are going to get richer anyway. They're going to invest their money somewhere anyway. If you can encourage them to invest it in the areas that are economically neglected, that's a win-win situation. Yeah. And, you know, when the analysis was done um, and it was shown how many jobs were created and uh, how many people were lifted out of poverty, 
you know, a lot of that criticism began to wane away. That's right. That's right. And then, um, you know, we, we started the foster youth, the independence program, because foster youth were just coming out of foster care and, you know, a lot of them were ending up homeless because they didn't have a support system. Can you imagine being 18 years old and then all of a sudden you're out there on the street? And uh, so, you know, that was pretty, pretty awful. Yeah. And then the Envision Centers where we, there are a lot of services that already exist to help people, but they're scattered all over the place. Bring them all under one roof, coordinate them along with the federal and state programs and then it makes it much easier for that woman who doesn't have her GED but has three little kids come and find out how she can get childcare, how she can get her GED, how she can get further training uh, so that she can become independent and begin to teach that to her children so you can break those cycles of poverty. You know, all of the problems that we have I really think are solvable with a little bit of logic and common sense take the politics out of it. That's right, that's right. Your Senate testimony, going into that, I was trying to reason how it is a pediatric neurosurgeon was going to run this massive organization, HUD. Mm -hmm. But your Senate testimony made it very, very clear of the tie-ins, the implications, the correlations between good housing, affordable housing, children's education, and health. And health. And if you run it correctly, the housing administration costs would eventually be paid for by the increases in educational quality, mm -hmm. the learning competency, and also the, the health benefits, it seemed like. Right, but it seems, uh, what I learned very quickly is that there is a segment of Washington that really is not interested in people getting out of poverty and out of dependency and they fight you tooth and nail when you start doing things that will get people out of those situations. So this is obviously gonna be an ongoing issue. It's, it's one of the reasons that a lot of the people that I worked with at HUD have joined me in the new endeavor, the American Cornerstone Institute, uh, because we don't wanna see our country go down another pathway. We believe that the principles that were behind the establishment of this country and what this country represents, you know, freedom, liberty, and justice. Uh, and there are those who just don't like us mm -hmm. and they want us to change into some, some other kind of society. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those cornerstone principles are our faith which you know, we're unique in the sense that our founding document says that our rights and privileges come from God, not from government. And that's the way we have lived until recently when there are those who are trying to replace God with government. Yes. And you give government all the power they take care of you from cradle to grave, except it never works because they always run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> That's been the case as socialism and communism have been tried throughout the world. And I don't think we're gonna show that it's any different here. Yes. Um, and then also your faith 
teaches you how to react to other people, to love your neighbor, uh, not to cancel your neighbor or to hate your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And then the next cornerstone is liberty. You know, people came to this country from all over the world because they were so attracted to the ideal of being able to lead the life that you want to lead as long as you're not infringing upon somebody else's rights. And uh, that drew people from every aspect of the world. And now we're in the process of changing that. Um, and some people say, well, we haven't lost any of our liberties. Yes, we have. Uh, almost no one is willing to speak freely anymore. It's always, let's see, uh, am I going to get in trouble? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to get canceled? And you know, the fact that it isn't the government imposing it, it's big tech and uh, media imposing it with the compliance of the government yeah. is every bit as effective as the government was applying it. Yes. And uh, you know, we need to make sure that the American people understand what real liberty is all about, why it's so important, and, and why those freedoms come from God. And then the, the concept of community, which is the next cornerstone, the reason that this country was able to thrive uh, is because we worked together. You had small communities all across this nation from sea to sunny sea, in many cases separated from other communities by you know, tens or even hundreds of miles. But they, they still survived, they thrived and they grew. Why? Because maybe everybody didn't have this skill, everybody didn't have this skill, but they worked together to build those communities. If it was harvest time and a farmer fell out of a tree and broke his leg, everybody else harvested crops, took care of his family. It just wasn't an issue. And that kind of, of camaraderie and unity made us incredibly strong. That's one of the reasons that we were able to pull together during World War II when the Nazis and the Axis powers were you know, making progress. But it was the Americans. It was the Americans, those young men who were able to go into massive areas of, of conflict and hundreds, thousands being slaughtered on D-Day when they got to those shores and they were being mulled down. They didn't stop. They stepped over those dead bodies and they overwhelmed the Axis forces, knowing in many cases that they would never see their homeland or their loved ones again. And they did that so that we could have freedom. And, and the young women who went into the factories and produced more airplanes and tanks and mortars than anybody could imagine. That, that's America, and that's America when America works, and we work together. And has America made mistakes? Of course. Do we have some warts? Of course. As does every place that is inhabited by human beings, because human beings are not perfect. But you don't try to erase your history, you try to learn from your history and you move forward. 
And that's one of the things that we're pushing at American Cornerstone. And then the last cornerstone, life. Uh, you know, from the womb to the tomb, we need to encourage respect for life. And as we've gotten away from respecting life, we've become much more coarse, much more callous in the way that we treat each other. So one of our new programs that's rolling out this summer is called the Little Patriots. And uh, we're trying to make sure that our young people actually know who we are. Not this, you know, critical race theory garbage and all this stuff, but what is the real history of this country? And who are those heroic figures and what made them heroic? Uh, warts and all. Yeah. We take the whole thing and we look at it. We make sure that people understand what were the driving principles that created a nation that is not this horrible, evil place that they try to make it out to be. Because if it was all that horrible and evil, why would people be forming caravans trying to get in here? So they could be persecuted? Exactly. Yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we just have to, to open our eyes, be logical, bring a little bit of common sense into the argument. Yes. And, uh, you know, I find that our country is sick right now. But uh, hopefully it's not a terminal illness. Yes. It's something that we can get over. And uh, we just need to diagnose it and bring the right treatments. That's right. That's right. On May 3rd, foxnews.com published a piece that you co-wrote with Governor Christy Nome about this division, right. uh, about this um, bastardization of what's happening to our educational system, the things that are trying to teach our kids about, and you, you, you implied that. You spoke, mentioned critical race theory a second ago. Why are you so concerned about this sort of agenda being specifically talked to in the school system, and secondly, about where it implies where we need to go? Well, because it creates people who resent our country, people who resent themselves, resent their parents. It creates a lot of white guilt. It creates a lot of black and minority victimhood. And those things lead to terrible policies. They don't lead to unity. They lead to division. And, you know, our nation is incredibly strong. It is not a nation that can be brought down by Russia, or China, or North Korea, or Iran, or any of them. But it can easily be brought down from within. A nation or a house divided against itself cannot stand. Words from Jesus, yes. repeated by Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and you know, a house divided never has stood, and it never will stand. And that's why it's so important that we confront this uh, before it becomes the standard of teaching in our country because our demise will shortly follow that. So we can't be passive. Uh, and, and that's why we're encouraging uh, parent groups. Go to the school board meetings. Get involved. Uh, encouraging people to speak out 
Yes, you may be targeted. You may be persecuted. You may be canceled. But those who helped to establish this nation in the beginning, they took a lot of risks too. There was no guarantee that a bunch of ragtag militiamen could beat the most powerful military force on earth. It would be like Cuba defeating the United States. But it certainly won't happen if you don't try. And uh, you know, you cannot be the land of the free if you're not the home of the brave. You have to be willing to stand up for what you believe in. And you think about you think about Francis Scott Key, who was on that British frigate. And uh, you know, he knew about the warning that had been given by the British commander to General Armistead at Fort McHenry. He said, take down that flag and surrender. If you don't, we will reduce you to rubble. And they had quite an armada out there, and it looked like maybe they could follow through on that. But General Armistead would not surrender. He would not take down the flag. And as the sun went down, the bombardment started all night long, rockets and the bombs bursting in air. And at the crack of dawn, It's hard to tell the story. <laughs> but he went out there, and he looked. The flag was still flying, torn and tattered, but still flying. And later on, you know, they discovered bodies of men at the base of that flag as they tried to hold it. So now that's who we are. That's America. When God decided to make Americans, he said, I want people with a little bit of panache. <laughs> I want people that are risk takers. I want people that know how to love. Yeah. And, and so I think just like he created Adam at the very beginning, mm -hmm. he, he created Americans. And it's such a, such a beautiful way to live your life. It is. With taking risks. And I, 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 see, I see that in you as well. Uh, you know, only the very few people would dare to run for president of the United States. Only the very few would attempt to take the most complex and complicated organism in the entire universe, the human brain, and take two of those and, and the interwoven connections of them and try to flesh all that out. And, and also try to keep the most sophisticated organism, two of them alive simultaneously. And I see, I see that Americanism in you, that, that assertion that God challenges us to take on risks that are unfathomable. He does, and you know, it requires courage to do that. Um, and that's what I'm trying to get the average American to understand. You know, we have something that is at risk right now, and that is freedom. Not only freedom for Americans, but freedom for the world. Because we're the first superpower 
that has not tried to dominate everybody else. And if we go off the scene, that will change. People don't remember, or people who don't know history, don't realize what the world was like before the United States became a great power. With all of these despotic leaders running around crushing anybody they could and taking their resources and dominating their people. And it will go back to that again. But right now we just have to, to come to the understanding that we're not each other's enemies. We've allowed the media and those who want to fundamentally change our nation to get us to believe that that person who has peacefully lived across the street from you for the last 20 years is now your enemy because they have a different yard sign than you do. Yeah. And that they have to be treated differently. What a bunch of garbage. You know, there's nothing that says in order to be cordial and friendly with each other and cooperative that we all have to think the same things. In fact, I always say if two people believe the same thing about everything, one of them isn't necessary. And, uh, you know, how boring would the world be if everybody right. thought the same way that you did? <laughs> and, you know, I say the same thing about, you know, racial diversity. Uh, I mean, who would want to go to the National Zoo if every animal was a Thompson's gazelle? Yeah. Or to the National Aquarium if every fish was a goldfish? Who would want a bouquet of flowers if they were all identical? And who would want to get up in the morning if everybody looked exactly like you? That's right. <laughs> in many cases, it would be a national disaster. So, you know, we should be happy that God gave us variety. And we need to emphasize, as Dr. Martin Luther King said, the content of the character, not the color of the skin. You know, superficial characteristics over which people have no control is absolutely the wrong thing to judge somebody on. Mm -hmm. But things that they can't control, that's a different story. That's right. That, that's one of the biggest insults, I believe, of critical race theories. It takes away the agency. It takes the agency away from the white person by implying that they're automatically racist because of that. Right. It takes the agency away from, from the, the, the African-American that there's, that, that's, that's the way they're being perceived, and right. their actions and behaviors mean nothing. Right. And, and when you stop and think about it, you know, that's antithetical to logical thinking. You know, what do animals do? Animals do not have these brains like we do. Uh, anybody who's done animal dissections and have also seen the human brain knows that the really big difference is that humans have these very large developed frontal lobes. And that's where you do rational thought processing. Animals have big, you know, midbrains and things that react. Yes. So they react largely on external visual clues. They don't have the ability to process deeper than that. Yeah. Especially in the present. Yes. In the present, yeah. So why do we reduce ourselves to acting like animals when we have so much more capacity? 
And I think that's what we really need to start talking about. I think we also have to encourage real open conversation. You know, particularly in, in places like universities that try to keep certain philosophies away from the kids. You know, I've, I've gone to some of those universities, some very liberal universities, and spoken. And generally, the reaction when I get done, standing ovation, everybody wants photographs, everybody wants autographs. But they don't get to hear that. They just to hear one side of the story. And I think that's one of the reasons that they try to keep logical people off of the campus, because they only want to feed the students one yes. line. Yes. That's the irony of the leftist thought process, right? Because when we talk about evolution, they want to say science is superior to Christianity, for instance. But whenever we're talking about the critical race theory, and we point out that, for instance, whenever you, you account for things like educational work, work skills, math skills, uh, verbal skills, and you look at African-American women compared to white women, you'll see that African-American women earn 7% more per hour than white women do when you, take it, when you normalize it for that. Right. But they don't want to hear about statistical no. sampling in that case. No, of course not. Everything has to serve their narrative. You know, you, you look at uh, the things that happened last summer, uh, George Floyd and all the other things that happened. They try to make it seem like that's an everyday occurrence or even an every week occurrence. It's not. These are things that are way off the end of the bell curve. Yes. But they go and they take each one of them and they magnify them and try to say, this is why we have systemic racism. and. They will never admit that there's been any progress whatsoever uh, in race relations in this country. Yeah. And yet, you know, I've lived in this country my entire life, except for one year I lived overseas. Um, I've seen enormous change since the time when I was a little kid. You know, now, you know, you see black CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, black admirals and generals, university presidents of prestigious Ivy League universities. Um, I mean, it's really pretty absurd to sit there and say that things have not changed. And people to actually believe that, mm -hmm. they've changed enormously. Does it mean that we've reached Nirvana? No, it doesn't. Does it mean we still need to pay attention and, and, and continue to move forward? Of course we do. But that's the nature of progress and civilization. That's right. That's right. One of the solutions to the perceived inequality in specifically the poverty levels has come from UCLA, specifically there's a lady by the, there by the name of Cheryl Lewis who is a professor in their law school that espouses this idea of a department of anti-racism, <laughs> the DOA, that would essentially be a fourth branch of the government that would be filled with appointees 
uh, that would have enforcement powers over not only the federal government, but also the state, the local government, and also private citizens. So it would essentially do away with federalism. It would do away with a lot of your amendments, specifically your First Amendment rights mm. to free speech. And it would essentially set up an Orwellian society where you have speech police. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine that something like that would be better than the trajectory that we have right now where you were the most powerful African-American in America the last four years. Obama was the most powerful African-American member the previous eight years. And it, seem, it seems like problem solved already, but they want to make an even bigger potential problem. Well, they need to create friction. They need to create chaos in order to justify changing the system. And also, they need to create victimhood in lots of different areas. So they drive wedges between us based on race, based on income, zip code, religion, age, virtually any demographic they can find. They want to drive wedges to divide the population and then to take each of those divisions and try to make them think that they are their savior. Yes. And ultimately, they want complete control, complete power, domination over people's lives. And I don't think, quite frankly, that most Americans buy it. But because the media gets to do the broadcasting, they tend to emphasize only what they want to emphasize. So it tries to look like the majority of people believe the way that they do, and that's not the case. And that's why it's so important for people to stop cowering in the corner and hoping no one calls them a racist or some other epithet. Yes, I'm very uncomfortable speaking about it. It's <laughs> right, and we and white men have been very uncomfortable speaking about it because we're because of cancel culture. Exactly. And so it's tough to solve a problem that you can't speak about. And uh, that's going to have to change. Yes. And, and the more people who start speaking about, the better. Mm -hmm. And the media, I'm hoping and praying that they will actually come to understand. Maybe they'll read history and recognize that when the communists and the socialists come to power, the first thing they do is control the media. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they will realize that before it's too late. I don't know. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I actually am optimistic, which is, which is why, you know, I'm out there doing all these things. It would be much easier to retire and put my feet up and play golf and enjoy life. But I really don't think that I could enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. Knowing what awaited the next generations of Americans. You, you spent your entire life so far helping the next generation, helping kids, whether it's as a pediatric neurosurgeon or in HUD, all the work you've done to help kids have affordable housing, uh, to better their education, the Carson Scholarship Fund. What is your philosophy of a quality education as, as one of the, the five tenets of the American Cornerstone Institute? Well, the, the reason that a quality education is so important 
is because it doesn't matter where you came from. You can come from the worst ghetto, you can come from Appalachia, it doesn't matter where you come from. If you get a good education, you write your own ticket. You become valuable in the society. And that's what we try to get people to understand. You know, I, I used to always say, and I still do, uh, I tell some of the uh, minority students who think they're being discriminated against, I said, why don't you concentrate on some of the hard sciences? You know, calculus, the right answer is the right answer. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the teacher thinks. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, with critical race theory, now they're trying to say, you know, precision and the answers and only one answer, that's racist. You know, that's just white supremacy stuff. And I, I can't even believe some of the stuff that, that, yeah. that they're purporting to, yeah. to spread to, to our society. That's right. And I'm just uh, hopeful that people will be a little smarter than that. The other thing that I think is so important, I have to come back to it again, and that is the concept of faith. It really is such an important part of who we are as Americans. You know, uh, when the Tocqueville came to the United States, came to America to study us, because the Europeans were fascinated with our country. They were saying, how can these people be making so much progress so quickly? What the heck is going on over there? And, you know, he was so impressed with what people were hearing from the pulpits of America and the tremendous value that we placed on faith and family and community and how that made us into incredibly strong people, uh, willing to take on all kinds of adversities and to conquer them. And when we throw away that faith in God, it has to be replaced by something else. And the likelihood of that something else being as good as God <laughs> is incredibly small which is why I think we're seeing so much turmoil. Uh, and it also divides us because we don't have that common thread which binds us together. And, but it will go away very quickly if we don't talk about it. Uh, and you know, during this COVID fiasco uh, where so many tried to cancel church while saloons were open. You know, we can't allow that to happen. And we have to continue to push those values of decency that allow us to have an improving society at all times. And so, when we say we are one nation under God, we have to make that true. When every coin in our pocket and every bill in our wallet says, in God we trust, we have to make sure that those are not just words that roll off of our tongue. 
when we look at the Declaration of Independence, our founding document, and it tells us that our unalienable rights are given to us by our Creator, a.k.a. God, and what that has meant to us. When we go back and we look at our history, we look at George Washington as a young officer courier during the French and Indian War at the Battle of Monongahela and all the other officers who were working for General Braddock, the, the, the Americans and the English were working together at that time uh, against the French and the Indians. And um, all the others were shot and killed. George Washington, on the other hand, kept riding back and forth and never suffered an injury, although after the battle, he had four bullet holes in his petticoat and bullet fragments in his hair. And years later, he was coming through the area. He had gained quite a lot of fame. He still wasn't president yet, but he had gained a lot yes. of fame. And uh, Chief Red Hawk, one of the chiefs during the French and Indian War, was very elderly at that time. He made the trip. He said, I have to meet this man. And he said, sir, I am an expert marksman. And I shot you many times. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, I told my people, I said, just hold your fire. It doesn't matter with this man. He said, I needed to meet the man who is protected by the great spirit above. Wow. And, uh, and that's the story of the bulletproof Washington. Wow. And there are many other amazing stories uh, involving the development of our nation, the Battle of Long Island, when Washington was down to his last battalion. And they were surrounded on land and on sea, and it looked like it was the end. The British were closing in. And meteorological records indicate that that evening a dense mysterious fog fell over the area. It didn't lift in the morning. It stayed there until he was able to escape and all of his men. And some people say it's co coincidence. It's not a coincidence. There were so many episodes. And I think God has blessed our nation, but God never forces himself upon people. And we have to once again grasp the significance of having a relationship with God mm -hmm. and how that inspires and informs our relationship with each other. That's right. That's right. You know, God didn't necessarily come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. Mm -hmm. And it's our decision whether we're going to live like that. Exactly. Uh, like I said, he doesn't ever force himself upon us, but he has made eternal salvation available to people. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot of uh, discussions with um, scientists about God, uh, even had a public uh, debate in, in uh, Hollywood 
uh, myself and Francis Collins on one side. Wow. And uh, Daniel Dennett and um, uh, who was the other? The, the famous atheist who wrote The God Delusion. Um, oh, Dawkins? Dawkins. Yeah. Right, on the other side. <laughs> wow. And uh, you know, we had quite an in-depth discussion. And at the end of the discussion, uh, I said, well, I think you won the argument because you convinced me that you came from a monkey <laughs> and I came from God. <laughs> That's great. And of course the audience just cracked up and he was just so mad. <laughs> but you know, when you, when you, I don't demand that everybody believe the way that I do, but I say, why not apply a little bit of logic and common sense? How did we get here? Uh, just poom, and we were here, and something came from nothing, and it was completely ordered, yeah. such that our planet rotates around the sun every 365 days, and rotates on its axis every 24 hours, and it's at a perfect distance from the sun, so that we're not incinerated. And I mean, it just goes on and on. You know, it the, does. How, how does that just happen? Yeah. Particularly in light of the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, which says things move toward a state of disorganization. Yes. So you have a big explosion and everything becomes perfectly organized? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> well, they, they like to even, even dismiss the law of, laws of thermodynamics and even cause and effect. You know, if the Big Bang happened, that was an effect, what was the cause? Right. If that was the first instance of something natural, something outside of nature must have struck down into nature like lightning right. and caused it. And the, the, Latin, the Latin phrase is ex nihilo nil, out of nothing, nothing comes. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And also, people say, how can you make this congruous with the Bible? Yeah. Uh, how can the earth be millions and millions of years old and you know, the Bible says it all happened in like the last 6,000 years. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void, without form and void. It doesn't say how long a period existed before he started doing stuff. So uh, when you bring that up to him, they said, man. <laughs> <laughs> but not only that, but remember, he's God. If he wanted to do it in 6,000 years, if he wanted to make something that was really old, he could do, boom, and That's there right. it would be. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. That's because he's God and we're not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I always, I always like to point out to when they ask the questions about time and history and yeah. about the Bible is, I can't, what, what year is it? It's 2021. All right, I forgot. What person in history did they re reorder time around? That's right. That's exactly right. It's, it's either AD or BC because of a certain person. Yeah. And so we've got a historical person there that, that, that is really here. And his resurrection is a historical certainty. Exactly. It's a certainty. Our calendars are based on it, even though they're trying to redefine it now. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> 
Well, um, we like to we like to give a gift to uh, to the guests that come on, and and so everything's everything's handpicked by me. So, the, the the game here is to try to figure out why I gave you this this gift, and it it should mean something <laughs> to you. But uh, this is uh, this is it, and then and then I want you to tell us why I gave it to you, and, and and there should be a story or two around that. Oh, isn't that nice, Messiah? The composition and afterlife of Handel's masterpiece. That's I'm anxious to read that. You know, George Frederick Handel wrote the Messiah in three weeks. One of the most uh, well-known masterpieces to mankind, and obviously he was inspired, uh, and he used verses from the beginning to the end of the Bible to, do, to tell the whole story of why we have a Messiah. And uh, it's a piece that has great meaning to me uh, and to my wife, who happens to be a violinist yes. who loves to play the score. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've sung in the choirs, she sung in the choirs, she plays music, I listen to it. Um, so this, this is a perfect, perfect gift for me. Good. I appreciate Good. it. You went to John, Johns Hopkins to, to get into the school through your missions and interview, and at least Cuba Gooding Jr. portrays it this way, where you, you made the comment that you loved classical music and that Handel composed the Messiah in three weeks, and how amazing that was, and he immediately extended you an offer. Uh, that was the first case. The second case was in 1997, which was then your third conjoined twins surgery separation, the Bandas. Mm -hmm. uh, there you, you went back to South Africa for that. Right. And uh, do, you, do you remember this part? Uh, I remember that they were playing classical music. Yes. Uh, and so at the at the end and at the end the hallelujah chorus that's right that's right 25 hours yes, into it yes exactly yes hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. yeah I, I hadn't thought about that for a little while but yes. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, that, was, that was an amazing uh, thing everybody was like had goosebumps <laughs> yes 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 and, and as a former trumpet player you'll you'll enjoy this that in Handel's Messiah he uses the trumpets obviously the trumpets signifying the Bible the coming of coming of Christ and also the the, the, the rebirth of, as as new types of citizens new types of bodies and he uses the trumpets like that, so much so that Handel wanted the trumpets in the first third, broken up into three parts, Handel wanted the trumpets off stage. He only wrote it for two trumpets, not for three trumpets, mm -hmm. because he just wanted the trumpets, trumpets just to be a little bit of an echo of, of what was coming. Mm -hmm. And finally, in the Hallelujah course, you get the great piccolo trumpet uh, right. portion there, and then, and then you get the trumpet throughout the, the duration of the, of the third movement. And then in the, in the beginning of the third movement, the trumpet shall sound. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, perfect. Thank you yes. for that. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. So okay. just a fun little, fun little thing there. Uh, 
in the you, you've had you have a storied movie history, showbiz history, um, which, by the way, I, I think uh, I think that your your cameo in Stuck on You was by far the funniest, especially the scene in the in the in the waiting room speaking to the uh, the girlfriends of the right. of the patients. <laughs> Um, look, uh, I don't quite know how to tell you guys this, but, uh, we lost them. Dr. Carson, good news. We found Bob and Walt. Someone takes them upstairs. Oh, fantastic. By the way, the operation was a smashing success. Was that fun for you? It was fun, actually. Uh, my wife didn't like it too much. <laughs> Because we had to take several takes with Eva Mendez pushing me, and she didn't like that. <laughs> watch the hands, watch the hands. <laughs> but uh, no, that was a lot of fun. And and then I, I don't know if you know, but we made a cameo in Gifted Hands also. Yes, you were walking by. Yeah. And you're. There was both my wife and I were walking by. We were looking at a chart. Yes. Uh, I, I, it was my Alfred Hitchcock moment. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was fun. And we went on the, uh, the set and uh, you know, everybody stopped and they, they came and gathered around and, and they said, you know, this is not a job for us. This is a mission. Mm. And uh, you know, that was extremely touching. And interestingly enough, you might have noticed, anybody who knows much about medicine uh, knows that the scenes in the OR uh, in contrast to most medical shows, were very realistic. Yes. And the reason that they were so realistic is because uh, those were real doctors and nurses mm -hmm. that were gotten from one of the local medical centers to play those parts. Wow. So, wow. You, in, during some of the uh, craniopagus uh, procedures, uh, which is the the head-to-head -head joining, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, there is, well, you used this strategy before. We will actually stop the hearts and you'll cool the blood. Walk us through some of the more technical elements of of, of, yeah. of this, this well, procedure. Well, in the in the first case, the Bender twins, they would join at the back of the head, and the outflow from the brain comes through that area. So every attempt to separate those kind of twins in the past had resulted in them bleeding to death. And, you know, the, the twins were brought to my attention. I had already by that time, I was only 35, uh, had already developed a reputation for maybe doing some unusual things. <laughs> so this was in 84? 84. Uh, that was in 87. 87, okay. okay. Right. And so I just started thinking about it. And I talked to a friend of mine who was the chief of cardiothoracic surgery, uh, Bruce Wrights. And I said, Bruce, you know, you operate on little babies, you operate in their heart. Uh, how do you keep them alive? And he says, we use hypothermic arrests. We cool the body temperature and, until the heart stops, pump all the blood out. On an infant heart, we can operate up to one hour before we have to warm the blood up, pump it back in, and then we shock the heart back into pumping again. And 
you know, I just started cogitating on that. And I said, you know, what if we were doing a separation and we got to the part where we have to cut through those vessels? We went on hyperthermic arrest. And then we were able to cut through and reconstruct all of those vessels in less than an hour and pump the blood back in and start the heart up. And, you know, I explained that to everybody and, and they said, you know, that, <laughs> that's, that, that could potentially Which work. just sounds just completely <laughs> insane, doesn't it? It, it does. does. <laughs> yeah, at the time, Time Magazine wrote an article. They said, this is the most complex surgical procedure in the history of mankind. <laughs> but, uh, but it worked. It worked. Wow. Wow. And, you know, we tried to do the same thing with the Makwaba twins. In South Africa, they were deteriorating very rapidly, and they were joined the same way. Yes. Uh, but when they opened the chest to put them on hypothermic arrest, they discovered that one of the twins heart wasn't working. So the other one was doing the work for both twins. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason they were deteriorating rapidly because as they grew, they were going to congest the fair because the one couldn't pump for two bodies. And uh, so we got them separated and sewn up, but of course the one with no heart function immediately died. Yes. The other one was okay in the beginning, but then started having seizures and uh, it turns out that the one that didn't have any heart function had all the kidney function. Mm -hmm. And the one that had the heart had no kidney function. So after a few days, that one died. Wow, wow. And I was, I remember I was just devastated. And I remember flying back and I was saying, God, you know, anybody could fail. You didn't need me to come over here and fail. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it was a couple of years later that the Banda twins. 1997, yeah. out of Zambia. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, of course, we had everything in place for the other twin case, including the teams, the international people who were able to bring them all back together. You, you brought them back to Mendoza where you had done the surgery three, in 1994. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, of course, this time it was highly successful. Uh, but it never would have been had we not done everything in preparation for it for the previous case. Wow. And sometimes, you know, we don't necessarily understand why things happen, but God does. Yeah, yeah. You made a somewhat unconventional choice within the bandist procedure regarding the shared sinus. Well, with the, with, with the Banda case, we got to a certain point, and uh, there were so many different vessels crossing uh, each other that we stopped the operation because it was very hard to figure out what was going to who and what, what you could cut, what you could move, sort of like a time bomb. And um, I said, you know what? Why don't we close them up and uh, we can restudy them and you know, allow some more collateral circulation to develop and then we can come back later and finish the job. 
And the doctors from Zambia and South Africa said, that's a great idea. And I know it would work at Johns Hopkins. But we can't keep partially separated twins alive. They'll die. And now I really felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. Yeah. And you know, I just prayed. I said, Lord, it's up to you. And I went back in there. And for the next several hours, I was operating. But I don't remember what I did. And the other neurosurgeons after the case said, we could not believe what you were doing. <laughs> we just couldn't believe what you were doing. Um, but when we finished the operation, after 28 hours, one of the twins opened his eyes right there in the operating room, reached up for the endotracheal tube. The other one did the same thing by the time we got to the ICU. Uh, within two days they were extubated, within three days they were eating, within two weeks they were crawling, and of course they're neurologically normal young men now. Wow. So Praise God. It's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. Amazing. What do you see as the role of challenges and disappointment and failure and lie? Because it seems like there's a higher good in a lot of this, especially with the 1994 procedure that went awry with mm -hmm. 1997 that really, really came to fruition, that, that yeah. there was some benefit there. How does, how does God use challenges and disappointment? Well, I, I always say nothing is an actual failure if you learn from it. Because yeah. that's how we make progress. You know, in academic medicine, it's very important when you're doing experiments, particularly in the laboratory, to notate the results to write an article about it, whether it's successful or not. Because somebody else is going to be working on that. And they can learn just as much from your failure as from your success. Uh, and they can move a lot faster if they know what doesn't work along with what does work. So, you know, failure is a part of life. But it's the way that you react to it that makes the difference. There's virtually no one who's done anything of significance that doesn't know failure. Nothing ever works 100% all the time right up the line. Uh, but there are a lot of people who get discouraged by the failure, and they stop. And uh, you talk to uh, Elon Musk, you, you talk to Steve Jobs, you talk to any of these people, they will tell you about massive failures and great disappointment and discouragement. Uh, but you keep going. That's right. It's almost that God called you to run for president. He didn't tell you you would win. He told yeah, you to run. That's right. And, you know, when, when I think about it and I dissect it, um, you know, I developed, you know, an enormous following during that. Uh, and when I dropped out, you know, they were all very disappointed. And people kept sending money even after I dropped out. I could please stop sending my money. <laughs> um, but when I threw my support to Trump, there were a lot of people said, no, no, we can't. But we convinced them to, to go with him. Yeah. Because if, if that hadn't happened at the rate that things were going, we would have ended up with a brokered convention. Yes. And if we had a broker convention, 
the other side would have won. And they would have gotten three Supreme Court picks. And I think that would have finished us off. Because what do you need to really fundamentally change a society? You have to gain control of the educational system, control of the media, and control of the judicial system. They would have had them all. Yeah. It would have been over. So we've had a little reprieve, but it doesn't mean that we can relax. Uh, and, you know, I always say this is not about Republicans and Democrats. This is about people who believe in America, the concept, the idea, and those who don't, mm -hmm. and those who want something else. And people need to understand this is a much bigger issue than anything that we have ever faced before. This is every bit as big as the Civil War. You're one of the few people to run for president in a, in a serious manner. Mm -hmm. uh, you participated in 10 of the 12 Republican primary debates before Super Tuesday. You were in a room with these people for a year or so. Who were the real personalities backstage? Because you were always in the, in the, in the tier A, you were never in the tier B. Right. You, so you generally had about 10 candidates or so mm -hmm. with you. Um, well, of course, uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> he was, a, he was a, a major personality from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and uh, Mike Huckabee mm -hmm. uh, was a, a very calming and, and logical uh, voice in the whole thing. Um, other people merged and disappeared and surged. Uh, Rubio and Cruz merged. They would surge and then they would disappear and then they would surge and then they would disappear. Um, but the, they were they were the main ones. Uh, Jeb Bush just never quite caught on the way that he was supposed to, or at least the way they, they thought it was supposed to. I'm right. not sure his heart was 100% in it, in the whole thing. You know, I was, throughout the whole thing, kind of evaluating everybody and trying to figure out, when I dropped out, who I would support. So you dropped out shortly after Super Tuesday, Trump eventually wins the nomination, wins the presidency. You join, I believe you were vice chairman of the transition team or one of the transition teams to be able to figure out how to set up the new government and right. you ended up as secretary of HUD. Walk, walk us through that, that entire process. That must have been fascinating. It, it was fascinating because, you know, there was such a big change that needed to occur. Uh, you know, we recognized that the government was just growing too big and, and too intrusive and uh, too expensive. And that if we were going to bring about a real transition, uh, we were going to have to massively reduce the regulatory structure that existed. I mean, there were regulations for everything. 
uh, to micromanage. And, uh, you know, the whole concept of federalism was out the window. Uh, they just wanted the government to control every aspect of your life. So, uh, you know, one of the first things you might have noticed that came out of the administration uh, was the rule that for every new regulation, you had to get rid of two. But people really took that to heart. And in the first several months, for every new regulation, we got rid of 22. Wow, wow. <laughs> we got rid of more than 2,000 regulations and sub-regulations at HUD alone. And, um, you know, those were the kinds of things that were necessary to really open up the economy, to create the kind of environment. And, and this is where it's good to have a businessman as opposed to a politician who understands what kind of environment is fertile ground for the development of new business. Yes. And of course, uh, by reducing the taxes and reducing the regulations, it made it really easy for people to start businesses and to hire new people. And you know, in a very short order, uh, you saw what happened. You know, the lowest unemployment for African Americans, Hispanics, uh, Asian Americans, uh, record low unemployment for women, uh, increasing wages, a very strong economy. Uh, and, and those are exactly the things that I had talked about when I was running. So I was so happy, uh, you know, yeah. to, to see that. And, you know, we had real alignment in terms of how th that should go. That's right. And I think you, Wilbur Ross, and Stephen Mnuchin were the three guys that survived the entire four years. Made uh, and Sonny Perdue. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, but it, it looks like if you look at the 2017 tax, cut and job, tax Cuts and Jobs Act, it looks like a lot of that, the opportunity zones that you mentioned, the capital gains treatment changes, um, all of that just has years and Stephen Mnuchin and Wilbur Ross's hands all over, fingerprints all over, it's been a phenomenal for the economy. It was amazing how effective it was in terms of um, new job creation, in terms of lifting people out of poverty, um, in, in terms of uh, increasing wealth, because uh, there were 8,761 opportunities on. And uh, when you haven't heard very much about it in the new administration, no. You know, no. even though they saw the tremendous results. And people stopped complaining about it, you know, about a year and a half ago because they were seeing the results. Yes. But, you know, unfortunately, when you throw politics into the mix, uh, bad things begin to happen. And, and that's why it's so important, I think, uh, for people to see in juxtaposition what happened with the last administration and what's happening with this one. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, they need to see the difference. Yeah. Because otherwise what happens is you just slowly, like the frog in the saucepan, slowly get cooked. You slowly slide towards socialism and communism. Next thing you know, you're there.
Now it's like slapping them in the face with a cold fish and <laughs> oh, <laughs> see what's happening. And I, I think that's actually going to be a good thing for our country. Yeah. I mean, let, let's, let's you, you originally brought up the Opportunity Zones program. It's a phenomenal program. Let's, let's specifically what has to happen here. So you, 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 you somehow trigger a capital gain. You're, you're an investor, you're a mom and pop, you sell some stock, you sell it a collectible, you trigger that. You can either pay taxes on it immediately, or you can defer it for seven years, or and get two step-ups basis. Or, or basically, if you if you take the investment of the unrealized capital gain and you leave it in for five years, you get a ten percent decrease uh, in the capital gains taxes that are needed. If you leave it in for seven years, it's fifteen percent, and if you leave it in for ten years. You don't have to pay any capital gains on the new money that was realized as a result of the investment. So it's a tremendous incentive. And it was anticipated that it would attract $100 billion worth of uh, new investment into these opportunity zones over a 10-year period. In the first two years, it attracted $75 billion, three quarters wow. of that amount in just two wow. years. Uh, it was a phenomenal opportunity. Those are the kinds of things that a federal government should be doing in order to eliminate poverty, in order to provide opportunities you know, for the downtrodden. Not programs where you just hand people money and do things that aren't you know, encouraging them to climb ladders of opportunity or have lasting impact. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, the previous president was hated so much uh, by the, those who advocated for the status quo. This was pretty far out of the status quo, yes. the way we were doing things. Yes. But they were working, yes. and they were working very quickly and yeah. very effectively. And they, they were targeted pretty specifically at these census tracts that had economic issues, the, the, a certain percentage of the poverty level, I believe, that, that the, the governors could nominate to the federal government. Maybe it was right. Stephen Mnuchin's team that was... Right. They were able to take 25% the of the places that had uh, significant amounts of, of poverty and designate them as opportunity zones. And, you know, the plan was to, as you got these places built up, to add more and just to keep the ball rolling. Yes until you finally were able to you know, eliminate all of those kinds of blighted areas. And yeah. It was a good plan. And it uh, doesn't you know, mean that we're not going to be able to get back on that pathway in the future. Yeah. But I think when we do get back on that pathway, uh, there'll be fewer skeptics, because they will have been able to see what happens with the other way of doing things. Yes, yes. So um, you have a really unique position because you're one of the few people that work directly with Trump on a regular basis. What was that relationship like? Uh, first of all, people should know that Trump is a really nice person. He's a really fun person to be around. Um, and he actually cares about people. And the way I really first discovered that was when I went to Mar-a-Lago uh, for the first time. This was before either of us got into politics. Uh, and 
you know, he and I were talking, and, and you know, he was just so cordial. And one of his people came up and said, uh, Mr. Trump, uh, Rod Stewart just came in. And he said, I don't care, this is Ben Carson. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and talking to his people, the people who worked there, the people who parked the cars, the people who fixed the food, they just have so much love for him. And, uh, you know, that doesn't, you can't fake that. Mm -hmm. He does things for people. There was one time uh, his limo had a flat tire. And, um, you know, a fellow stopped to help them get it back on the road. And, you know, Trump wanted to do something for him. And he said, no, 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 it's, it's, it's all right. He, so Trump said, well, at least let me send your wife a bouquet of flowers. Give me your address. And he said, okay, well, we can, we can do that. And uh, the next thing you know, the guy got a bouquet of flowers with a note in it that Trump had paid off his mortgage. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, you know, that's, and, you know, he doesn't talk a lot about the stuff that he does for people, but there are so many stories like that. You don't do that unless you have a good heart. And one of the other ways I, I knew he had a good heart is, you know, during the campaign, we were all running. You know, at one of the uh, debates, I couldn't hear my name announced, so I was just standing there. Everybody else gladly walked past. He didn't. He came and he stood with me until they managed to straighten it out, what was going on. Wow. He was the only one who complained uh, about the fact that the moderators of the debates were not asking me questions. Yeah. And everybody else was delighted they weren't asking me questions. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so. Well, and you and Trump are the only two to go up against CNBC and, and, and try to get changes. You, you both threatened that we're not showing up unless you do these handful of things. Um, so more, you mentioned mortgages a second ago as Secretary of the Housing and Urban Development Administration, you, you're, you being a conservative, you have to use federal tools. You're, right. you know, conservatives are traditionally limited government folks, but you're relying on low interest rates, which involve the, the, the Treasury, the Fed. Um, you're relying on economical means to be able to effectuate change, mm -hmm. get limited low-cost housing, low-cost multifamily developments done through your partnership with Fannie and Freddie. What is maybe one or two things that's changed in your mind for the limitedness of government, especially in places of direct impact to, to the American citizen like well, HUD? Well, well, actually, the biggest thing that changed during the administration uh, in my agency uh, was the fact that it was so ineffective and inefficient that we had not had a clean audit for eight years. Mm. There were so many material defects and deficiencies. Uh, the inspector general couldn't do a real inspection. Uh, all of the accounting offices were frustrated. OMB had a hard time working with HUD. And so I realized very quickly that 
none of the programs are going to be effective or efficient unless we get this under control. Now, uh, some people thought that I didn't have much management experience. Uh, they really didn't know I had to, to manage my whole division very effectively with every penny. Uh, they didn't know that I spent 18 years on Kellogg's Board of Directors. Uh, they didn't know that I spent 16 years on Costco's Board of Directors. <laughs> they didn't know that I had started a national nonprofit. Uh, so I had plenty of experience. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it became very apparent that we were going to have to do a major overhaul of the financial structure of HUD. And in order to do that, you were going to need not government bureaucrats, but people from the private sector who knew how to do that. So we went on an arm-twisting expedition. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we managed to get uh, Irv Dennis, a 37-year uh, partner with Ernst & Young, yeah, with much cajoling to come. And uh, he was able to really completely overhaul system and run HUD like a business instead of like a government bureaucracy. And by the time we left, it was the model of all the federal agencies in terms of how things should be run. And you know, by, by doing that, we were able to improve all of our programs at FHA, at, at, at Jenny May. Um, all of our loan programs. We were able to develop uh, a, a dashboard uh, so that we could have real-time input in terms of where the money was going. And what that did was gave us the ability to give a lot more flexibility to the grantees because we didn't have to spend all of our time running down every penny. We could see every day what was going on exactly. Uh, we were able to uh, build into that system an alarm system so that we knew when deadlines were coming, so that we knew who to contact about the deadline and what was going on. So it improved the efficiency of the agency enormously. You saw an explosion in multifamily development over the four years that you were there. Very, very affordable housing, done very well, great interest rates, great lending terms. Uh, that's funded a lot by the private sector. Right. You also saw a great deal of veterans lending. I know after this, we're both gonna go over to a veterans event for Helping a Hero, right. who builds houses for disabled veterans, disabled heroes. Uh, what are those sorts of programs in your mind? What role do those play in the American society, filling those gaps? Well, they play a huge role, you know, particularly the, the emphasis on public-private partnerships because you have to realize that there's a lot more money in the private sector than there is in the government. You wouldn't know that from what you've seen recently with the government spending trillions of dollars, but that's not trillions of dollars that they have. Yes. That's trillions of dollars that they're borrowing from future generations, which is gonna have a very negative impact on the quality of life for people who are coming after us. Mm -hmm. I don't think people are really stopping to think about that. So what we were doing is 
creating the appropriate incentives for the private sector to be able to invest in some of the multifamily dwellings and the convert, converting them, you know, like the rental assistance demonstration, the RAD program, uh, converting hundreds of thousands of, of units uh, and making them into nice places. You know, one of the problems with the public housing uh, of the past is that the government would come in with millions of dollars and, and build these big elaborate things and then move on to the next place. And there was nobody who really was taking care of these places and they would deteriorate and crime and prostitution and all kinds of stuff. Would, and it would just be a disaster. Who would want something like that in their neighborhood or anywhere near them? So, you know, that led to isolation. And uh, th these were just bad policies, bad forward thinking. When, when we do it the other way, we, with the public-private partnerships and with the local community involvement, we're able to build beautiful mixed income places uh, that, that no one uh, is ashamed of. But again, you don't put those in the middle of a neighborhood of single family homes. There are plenty of places around where you can put them uh, and have win-win situations for everybody and everybody's happy. Um, for some reason, as you probably know, there was a lot of controversy. Um, you know, people saying that, no, we have to put this big multifamily development right here in the middle of this neighborhood because that will give us the kind of appropriate diversity and stuff that we need. You know, what people don't realize is that the suburbs are already quite diverse. Uh, about 32% of suburbanites are people of color. And uh, there's been a significant movement, particularly in the African-American community, uh, into the suburbs. And you will find that those uh, African-Americans and Hispanic families that have made it out there, they're not interested also in having, you know, some multifamily development plopped down without their uh, permission. Uh, but they have no objection to having it in an appropriate setting where the kids can still go to the same schools. But, you know, neighborhoods are built in certain ways. And that should be a responsibility of local jurisdictions and the people who live there. And they ought to be the ones who can decide that. And where they have decided that, they've built beautiful neighborhoods, mixed income, mixed race neighborhoods in a beautiful setting where everybody's been happy, but let them do it themselves. Don't impose stuff upon them. And, you know, that was something that, uh, you know, we, we really tried to emphasize. And, you know, we were making tremendous progress also with homelessness. Uh, I had developed a very good uh, relationship with uh, Garcetti and, uh, and with the governor as well and with the various commissioners. And we actually had put together a plan uh, 
to be able to take care of the homelessness problem in Los Angeles. Wow. And lo and behold, along came COVID, <laughs> and everything was just yeah. pushed aside yeah. at that point. Well, Dr. Carson, we're running short on time. And as we wind down, could you share with us first of two questions? First of all, share with us about American Cornerstone Institute, how we can stay in touch with you uh, via, that, via that new organization, which is a 501c3 charitable organization. Correct. Well, first of all, you know, rather than retiring, which I was tempted to do after finishing at HUD, <laughs> Uh, I realized that I probably couldn't relax anyway, knowing what was happening to the country. Uh, so uh, the very people that had been working with me to transform HUD, uh, many of them came over to work with me in developing the American Cornerstone Institute uh, based on the four cornerstones that we talked about. And it's growing very rapidly. Uh, we're getting a lot of traction very quickly because we're not just a think tank, we're also a do tank. Uh, and uh, that's why you know, we're rolling out the uh, Little Patriots program, uh, the More Perfect Union program, uh, where we're uh, getting people involved with the Constitution, uh, with the Bill of Rights, with the Declaration of Independence, with many of our documents and our history uh, in an appropriate way. Uh, we're going to be doing a series of uh, roundtables around the nation. We've already started doing conversations. And you can listen in on a lot of those by going to uh, AmericanCornerstone.gov. And the web page will come up. And there are a lot of different directions that you can go. Uh, you'll, you'll also see a lot of the television interviews that I've been doing, uh, trying to get the messages out to people in a very appropriate and timely way, but also helping people to realize that we don't have a long time uh, to dilly-dally here. We have got to get busy if we want to save our country. That's right. That's right. To close, uh, my eight-year-old daughter, she wants to be a doctor when she grows up. Mm. And I said, Rosie, what kind of doctor do you want to be? Up, be? She said, well, I want to be a pediatric doctor because I want to help kids. I said, that's really nice of you. I'm, I'm going to go talk to Dr. Carson, who was also a, a kid's doctor, too. And, she, and I said, well, now, Rosie, why do you want to be a, a pediatric doctor? She said, Dad, just common sense. If I'm a doctor for old people, they're going to die pretty soon. But kids, they've got a long life, lifespan ahead of them, sort of eight-year-old. So my final question to you, Dr. Carson, is what is your greatest hope for Americans' kids? My greatest hope uh, for our kids is that they will learn about who we really are, that they will get the true story of America, and that they will want to be a part of it, that they will recognize that we are the greatest nation that the world has ever seen for a reason. It's because of our belief systems. It's because of the way that we have learned to try to be fair, how we have learned to encourage the development of entrepreneurship and innovation in a positive direction, and that they will want to be a part of that. 
not a part of tearing it down, but a part of building it up. Fantastic. Dr. Carson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure being with you.